So many are willing to fall for ridiculous ideas because they've been told them throughout their lives, such as evolution is a fact. They then assume it cannot be wrong if everyone believes it. No. There are 800 million Hindus, but even if everyone was Hindu, that wouldn't make Shiva, Vishnu, or Krishna real. Just because someone or everyone believes in something doesn't make it true. Evolution is a fact because it can be objectively verified even under direct observation in controlled conditions and indicated by ample evidence otherwise. We can prove what we know to be true about evolution. But creationism really is just a ridiculous idea that some uneducated or irrational people only believe because they've heard it all their lives, since they were children before they were even able to reason. Otherwise, no one even could believe in that at all. One source admitted that living things are suited for their environment better explains the fact that they were created for it, not that they evolved into it. You can't say your source admitted this because that implies that your source holds the opposite position from you and is admitting that your criticism has merit. But your source is just another creationist like yourself, one that we've already seen, doesn't have any knowledge of this subject whatsoever and is no more competent than a schoolboy. That's why he can't even write a coherent sentence either. No, your source is not admitting anything. He's expressing his ignorance just like you're expressing yours. Next comes a tiny, little-known creature, the Australian termite. This particular termite differs from all others. In fact, it's four creatures in one. Each depends on the others for continued existence, where you cannot have one without all the others. Let's see. A curiosity I studied in microbiology class was a microorganism called Myxotrica paradoxa that lives in the gut of Australian termites. When it was first discovered, it looked as if it was covered with a bunch of curly hairs. Looking closer, it was revealed that these were not hairs at all, but spirochetes, a totally different type of microorganism. On the myxotrica, there were bumps or appendages where the spirochetes attached, and bacillus, which lodged on the other side of the bump. The spirochetes provide a means of locomotion for the entire colony of microorganisms. They are three totally different germs that decided to live together in a community. So, what you have is an interdependence between a large microorganism, a spirochete, a bacillus, an Australian termite, and even the trees the termites feed upon. I suppose if you're an evolutionist, you would have to believe that at one point in time they formed a committee and decided to all work together. The myxotrica developing bumps where the spirochetes could burrow their heads and behind which the bacillus could hide, all of whom decided to live in the gut of a termite. Interdependence and ecology are problems for evolutionists. These principles demonstrate there are delicate balances between all of the different species on the earth and that each is dependent on the other. Which evolved first, a species or the food it feeds upon? In this case, the food evolved first, but it can be the other way around, because species that are adaptable can become capable of something else and change habits accordingly. Understand that evolution is an explanation of biodiversity. In fact, it is the only explanation of how one species proliferates into many. For example, 
Bacillus is a genus of rod-shaped bacteria consisting of several different species found all over the world, one of which is responsible for anthrax. How's that for intelligent design? Likewise, there are a half dozen different genus of spirochetes, each having multiple species, with one of them responsible for Lyme disease. Glory to God for creating them, right? And you may have thought that you were talking about the Australian termite, but it turns out there are roughly 300 species of termite just in Australia. Only one of them has the symbiotes you're talking about, which is why that one is named after Charles Darwin. I know you don't understand why that is, you don't understand anything, and you probably still won't even after I explain it, but here goes. Termites are six-legged insects closely related to cockroaches and earwigs. All animals, including you, have symbiotic bacteria living in their gut to assist with digestion. You are a symbiotic organism. Every one of your cells is infested with a disabled rickettsia bacteria whose ancestors lost the ability to escape the infested cell. Thus, sequestered mitochondria have become domesticated by the host cell and now live in symbiosis with it by providing additional fuel in exchange for its own nourishment. This wasn't an agreed arrangement. Spirochetes don't have heads. They aren't thinking creatures and they can't communicate. Neither were they poofed out of nothing by magic. This is just microbial biochemistry. It occasionally works out this way, but most often doesn't. Fully functional rickettsia causes rickets. You might want to praise God for that, too. Different organisms have ingested different bacteria. Sometimes it passes harmlessly, sometimes there's an adverse effect. But sometimes there's a mutual benefit. So early termites ingested not just bacteria to help digest plant cellulose, they also ingested a species of protozoans, single-celled eukaryotes that do the same thing. How termites acquired those protists is no great mystery either. Earwigs and cockroaches try to eat anything anyway, including wood, and that's how termite ancestors acquired these symbiotes, more or less infecting each other, but in a way that leads to mutual benefit. Otherwise, they never could have achieved this recurrent state. So what you have is some ancient bug trying to eat wood, and it accidentally eats protists on the wood that also eat wood. And since the bug is cold-blooded, there's nothing to kill the protists and no reason to since it doesn't harm the bug and a couple extra germs attached to the protus because germs are everywhere, and in this case, the bug's gut is consistently serving what all three of them happen to eat. So there's no mystery as to how all this came about sequentially and obviously not all at the same time. And to think creationists are always depicted as having blind faith and illogic. Well, yeah, of course. You pretend to know what no one even can know, you maintain your delusion against all evidence to the contrary, and you foolishly assume unsupported absurdities without any evidence at all, like you're about to do right now. So obviously, this proves special creation of all four creatures at the same time. They could not have developed separately and survived to eventually rendezvous for interdependent existence. Well, yes, of course they could. Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Oh. Think McFly? By your own admission, other species of termites exist which do not have any of these symbiotes. You now know that spirochetes and bacillus also exist in great numbers independent of each other and without termites. So you were wrong when you said, Each depends on the others for continued existence, where you cannot have one without all the others. Obviously, all of these things already exist independently, too, and they're not completely dependent on each other, either. Interdependence and ecology are problems for creationists, especially those who deny climate change, but they're easily explained by evolution, and in fact, they're only explained by evolution. 
Next comes the unique relationship between koala bears and eucalyptus trees. Both are only native to Australia. Koalas eat nothing but eucalyptus leaves, often living their entire lives in one grove. They also derive moisture from these leaves because they almost never drink water. Koalas possess specific microorganisms in their digestive systems required to break down elements in eucalyptus leaves that are toxic to all other creatures. These toxins actually convert into vitamins. How did koalas evolve unless they were created with these microorganisms already present in their stomachs? Otherwise, they would have eaten the leaves and died. Yet their systems are so specific, they can only survive on these leaves. Naturalists consider them to have the most advanced digestive system on Earth. A low 5% protein intake plus tannins and toxins would kill other animals. Sadly, rejecting creation by God, evolutionists must conclude what luck for koalas that just the right microorganisms entered their system at the exact same time they developed a taste for only eucalyptus leaves. No, this proves God created koalas. No, koalas were not poofed out of nothing by magic, and if they were, then a better design would be one that produces all the enzymes necessary to digest food without being dependent on ingested bacteria. Koalas are not unique creations. Like most indigenous Australian mammals, koalas are marsupials. Other than bats and a few lucky rodent castaways who have apparently floated over in debris, the only placental mammals in Australia are the ones that humans have brought over in recent times. This is because marsupials and monotremes, also native to Australia, are older than eutherians. By the time placental mammals finally evolved about 100 million years ago, Australia was already cut off by rising sea levels. Evolution works by taking what we've already got and modifying that, inadvertently experimenting with changing morphological and physiological proportions in any direction in an individual and in every direction throughout the population. Because evolution works blindly, blind design without goal or consideration. That's how you get koalas and that's how we get gum trees, because there's no reason a god would make either of these things. Creationism doesn't explain anything, including the fact that koala-like animals appear in the fossil record at least 25 million years ago, before the evolution of eucalyptus. So the ancestors of koalas may have eaten the ancestors of eucalyptus, along with a few other things. A eucalyptus evolved to become toxic to other animals in large amounts, but koalas don't eat large amounts because they've adapted a very, very slow metabolism. So they don't need to eat very much. From there, it's not hard to develop a strain of marsupials that only eat eucalyptus where previous or less adapted variants were at risk on the ground otherwise because of their very slow metabolism. So koalas developed the ability to exploit a food source that was abundant for them because it makes everyone else sick. That's evolution. It's easy and obvious and verifiably true, and it's the only thing that makes sense in light of the facts. God rejecting evolutionists have no excuse for disbelief. So you propose that a magic imaginary genie conjured koalas and filled them with bacteria so that they could only eat plants that he also designed to be poisonous. Then, after he created men, things didn't go the way he foresaw, which disputes the notion of prophecy. So since he didn't see that coming and wasn't smart enough to come up with a better plan to fix it when anyone else could have, he decided to flood the world and drown everyone everywhere, destroying all life on Earth just to get rid of a handful of heathens living coincidentally in the Iraqi floodplain, where an isolated flood would have been sufficient. 
Now, the reason that this legendary tale is such repugnant nonsense is that it's obviously a fable adapted from elder pagan fables and grossly exaggerated from any original kernel of truth. But if you believe that yarn, then you think there's one pair of koalas which God designed to only eat eucalyptus leaves, but they didn't have any on the boat because Noah couldn't import any. So these two koalas not only had to spend a year on a boat without any food, while not being eaten by the predators who didn't have any food either, then they had to walk from southern Turkey back to northern Australia without any eucalyptus. There wouldn't have been anything there at all. I mean, the whole world would have been salted and every plant everywhere long dead by then. So every animal on the ark would have starved. But let's forget about that for a moment. Koalas have slow metabolisms and can only sprint short distances of a whopping five miles an hour. So if they walked for 10 hours a day, they could only cover 10 miles a day. And it would take them three years to traverse the 11,000 mile distance without any food. And there wouldn't be any when they got there either. And that's if you forget that Australia is an island continent and that there's no way two koalas are going to swim there. So creationism isn't just a denial of reality. It means that you have no perception of nor relationship with reality. It's not just unrealistic, illogical, irrational, deliberately dishonest, willfully ignorant, wholly unsupported nonsense. It's brain-bending stupidity. You're so stupid. In order to make believe the unbelievable bullshit you pretend to, you can't allow yourself to think. The next amazing quote demonstrates the impossibility of whales and dolphins evolving. It lies in context with a larger statement about why there is no fossil record showing what would have to be almost endless transitions of development. We can demonstrate one such transition problem by using the example of dolphins and whales. These mammals bear their young alive and breathe air, yet spend their entire lifetime in the sea. Presumably, in order for dolphins and whales to have evolved, they must have originated from a land mammal that returned to the water and changed into a sea creature. But dolphins and whales have so many remarkable features upon which their survival depends that they couldn't have evolved. It would be a lot like trying to change a bus into a submarine one part at a time, all while it is traveling at 60 miles per hour. Of course, you're ignoring the fact that all the ancestors of whales could swim where a bus cannot, and that we're talking about population level changes, not individuals at speed. But of course, you can't be honest when you're trying to defend a belief system with no truth to it. So go on, keep lying. The following is a list of transitions evolutionists have to account for in the dolphin in its evolution from some unknown land-dwelling pre-dolphin. One, the nose would have to move to the back of the head. This transition is illustrated with a number of intermediate species, starting with Pachycetus, a hooved carnivore, one of many known from the fossil record that we don't have anything like them anymore. The vast majority of species that have ever lived on the earth are extinct now, another testament against divine design. The whale's closest living relatives on land are hippopotamus. This was first discovered by skeletal analysis and later confirmed genetically. So there are reasons to believe that Pachycetus was already in the water quite a bit and represents the first stages of whale evolution. They essentially have a whale's skull on a four-legged body. Whales also have simple conical teeth like a reptile, not the diversified types of teeth that mammals developed later. And as you can see, the nostrils on Pachycetus are way out on the end of the snout. The next in our sequence, 
Ambulocetus, also known as the walking whale, shows signs that it was in the water habitually, although still capable of getting out on land. The next one in this sequence that we have a skull for is Rhodocetus. Here the nostrils are not only back a bit further, they're in a depression indicative of muscles to close the nostrils under pressure, like a modern whale's blowhole. The next transition in this specific lineage is Dorodon and Basilosaurus, representing the first actual cetaceans, like the division between whales and dolphins. The nostrils are still forward of the eyes, but are now more on the top of the head rather than out on the end of the snout. Two, feet, claws, and tail would be exchanged for fins and flippers. That is what we see in the fossil record, not just for whales, but for manatees. In both cetaceans and sirenians, we see the hind legs diminish over time. Ambulocetus had shorter back legs than Pachycetus and was obviously not as adept on land. We know that modern whales still have the tiny remnants of their hind legs now hidden deep in their flesh, and we see that Basilosaurus and Dorodon still had hind flippers that were barely visible. This sort of trait can show up in modern dolphins as an atavism, where a once forgotten and now recessive genetic trait can still reappear on rare occasions. So we knew that the ancestors of whales had legs even before we discovered the walking whales, and we know that there should be intermediate fossils where the hind legs continue to shrink as the whale traits take over. Now, if creationism were true, there would be no four-legged whales. They would only exist if evolution is true, and then they would have to. So, of course, because evolution is really real, they do exist, and we found the proof of it in the fossils of this family. Another intermediate was predicted back in 1883, long before any of the walking whales were even discovered. The prediction was that the earliest protocetids likely had a broad beaver-like tail, which would eventually render the hind legs useless in the open ocean. Myocetus shows where the hind legs are even awkward in the water, with the tail now becoming much more powerful. Look, for example, at Cuchicetus. It still had four functional legs, but they're short and barely operable. This animal would have had such difficulty walking that it likely wouldn't even try to leave the water except perhaps to give birth, if even then, because while all these other walking whales were found in Pakistan, one genus of Protocetus was found in the U.S., in coastal states like Texas, Mississippi, and Georgia. So these whales were already capable of crossing oceans. And that means that they had to be able to sleep in the water and could likely give birth there, too. With Sirenians, we have a complete, unbroken sequence from a four-legged lumperer, closely related to the ancestry of elephants, onto a fully marine mammal with only a vestigial remnant of the now-absorbed hind legs, just like whales have. Manatees are not as derived as whales, so they retain a few older traits, like bending elbows, for example. Manatees also have broad, flat, rounded tails, like ancestral whales must have had. Except for the dugong, which is more advanced and has acquired the optimum shape for tail flukes. The same thing happened with ichthyosaurs, and in one line of crocodilians, and it even started to happen with some mosasaurs just before they were all wiped out in the KT extinction. Both manatees and whales come from hooved ancestors, and manatees show remnants of their hooves still apparent in their fingernails on their flippers. This useless evolutionary vestige is obviously not an intelligent design. Now, if creationists accept that all turtles are the same kind and therefore are all related, then they should understand how their toes become webbed and webbed toes become flippers. If they knew about fossils at all and accept that lizards are all related to each other too, then they should understand exactly why the flippers of mosasaurs still include all of their hand bones. Because these are not special creations. These are just adaptations. 
The same is obviously true for seals, being similarly adapted members of the order Carnivora, like a seagoing version of bears. We have intermediate species for that transition, too. Every amniote that has flippers has hand bones in it. Sharks and teleost fish typically don't because their fins didn't evolve out of hands. Three, it would have to develop a torpedo-shaped body for efficient swimming in the water. This is a simple adaptation that's been repeated many times in the fossil record. Look, for example, at ichthyosaurs. We have a fluid sequence of intermediate forms showing a transition from a still amphibious reptile to a fully marine form that could never crawl out of the water again. Four, it would have to be able to drink seawater and desalinize it. According to Berkeley University, animals are what they eat and drink, and salt water and fresh water have different ratios of oxygen isotopes. This means that we can learn about what sort of water an animal drank by studying its isotopes that were incorporated into its bones and teeth as it grew. The isotopes show that Ambulocetus likely drank both salt water and fresh water, which fits perfectly with the idea that these animals lived in estuaries or bays between freshwater and the open ocean. Five, its entire bone structure and metabolism would have to be rearranged. Apart from the nostrils, it's not rearranged, it's just a change in proportion. And as we've already seen, the fossil record indicates every stage of this change, not just for whales, but for a number of other amniotes that also took the same path. Six, it would need to develop a sophisticated sonar system to search for food. That's only for toothed whales. Baleen whales don't have that trait, so it may have emerged after the two lines diverged. However, Pachycetus already had a thickened skull bone known as an auditory bulla, which is unique to whales, meaning that only whales have it, and it was specialized for underwater hearing. Building on these physical attributes, genetic tests have confirmed that dolphins developed their echolocation the same way bats did. They share a couple hundred similar mutations in a protein called Preston, which affects the sensitivity of hearing. Could the dolphin acquire these features gradually, one at a time, over millions of years? Duh, and or hello. What about the transitional stages? Would they have survived with just some of these features? Well... Obviously, every intermediate has proved to be, just as predicted, easily capable as it is. An important aspect of biodiversity is that many species start out generalized, like a jack-of-all-trades. They can get by in many different environments if they have to, but they're not really adept at any of them. Then when they specialize, they can make vast improvements in something they could already do and keep getting better at it. But it comes at a cost, as they have to give up the versatility they used to have. Why is there a total absence of transitional forms fossilized? You mean like the dozens of transitional forms I just showed you, and which you will still, doubtless, try to deny even exist? Hello? Hello? Anybody home? Hey! Think with flies. A better question would be, why is there a total lack of brain in your head? And my hypothesis is that your particular skull, Mr. Pack, has closed in the brain case so that it is now just solid bone. This is to prevent reason or perception of evidence from being understood, and thus belief may be maintained. One of the facts to support this hypothesis is that your absurdly foolish beliefs are obviously more important to you than understanding anything that is really true. Consider the whale and its enormous size in comparison with the plankton it feeds upon. The whale is a nautical vacuum cleaner with a baleen filter. While it was developing this feature, what did it feed upon before? 
They probably ate about the same thing, but supplemented with slightly larger fish than they eat now. When you're as big as a whale, it's structurally difficult to act as a predator of equal-sized prey. You have to eat smaller game and a lot more of it. And contrary to what we've been led to believe about the modern sperm whales, they actually only have teeth in their lower jaw. However, an extinct ancestor called Leviathan had upper teeth too. And roughly 30 million years ago, some of the big whales developed baleen in addition to teeth. Then just a couple million years later, they subsequently lost those teeth, having become completely dependent on baleen. This is how their diet changed along with their morphology. And this too is documented in the fossil record with even more transitional species that you didn't know about. For me, it takes a great stretch of the imagination to picture the evolution of dolphins and whales. End of quote. I guess Douglas B. Sharp should change his name then. One good way to illustrate whale evolution is to see it reflected in embryology. I'm not saying that ontogeny necessarily recapitulates phylogeny, we know better than that. But there is a branch of biology called evo-devo, where embryological development mirrors certain aspects of evolutionary development. For example, in this dolphin, you can see that the nostrils first appear on the tip of the snout and then move to the top of the head the same way that it evolved. Likewise, this whale embryo has hind flippers just like they used to, but these are reabsorbed as it develops, just like it evolved. And all this, again, would only be true if evolution is true. And none of this would be this way for anything that was magically created unrelated to anything else. Not unless your god is a trickster making up evidence of something else intent on fooling people. It must be concluded both were created. That must be concluded only if you have a belief system where you're required to believe impossible nonsense for no good reason, and where you're not allowed to even acknowledge any evidence to the contrary. But if you're honest with yourself, and you want to know what the truth is, you'll understand why they can't have been created, and that they have evidently evolved. Besides, if an intelligent designer would especially create whales for life in the sea, he wouldn't try to make fish out of mammals, and he wouldn't make fish out of reptiles either. Instead, he would make unique creations, specially designed for their environment, and neither one would have any indication of its earlier incarnation, because there wouldn't be one. Any god worthy of worship would have specially equipped them so that they would, wouldn't have to stay near the surface or drown. Your designer is not very intelligent, but then neither are you. So I guess you really are made in his image. After all is said and done, the fossil record has never revealed what evolutionists hoped for. Yes, it obviously has, as I have just shown you. It gives distinct evidence of one fact, sudden special creation of all life in a fully formed condition. Wrong. Exactly the opposite is true. The fossil record reveals stages of development for different organisms appearing at different times. To believe anything else is to be dishonest with the evidence. To believe otherwise is to be aware of the evidence. Now I know that we shouldn't describe to malice that which can be explained by incompetence, and you are very obviously incompetent. But I think we both already know that you're also being willfully dishonest. <laughs>